Hello and welcome to the What the Data podcast. This is uh, one episode that almost got lost completely just due to problems with the internet connection and our recording tool. Um, so in the end, we were able to salvage some fragments of it. I hope it won't be too noticeable and you will still be able to take away a coherent train of thought. In today's episode, we talk to uh, Jonathan Sharvit, the author of the book um, Data-Oriented Programming, colon, Unlearning Objects. So um, this episode is going to be pretty technical. I, I'll just throw out a few words. If you don't know what they mean and you don't care to find out, um, you may want to just kind of skip this episode and listen to another one. So um, he is essentially uh, developing this idea of data-oriented programming, which to him is a more abstract realization of the uh, concepts that underlie the programming language Clojure. Clojure is a programming language that looks a lot like Lisp. It's running on the JVM on the back end, and it's wrapped in JavaScript on the front end. If any of those things made sense to you, you should definitely keep listening to the episode. And if you like the episode, you should definitely buy his book. Um, as I said, if you don't care much about a programming language that is not mainstream, even though it's not quite niche, um, and about ideas that concern um, the difference between an object and object-oriented programming or functional programming, as I said, steer clear, move on to the next episode. But um, we really enjoyed this conversation, especially because it was quite easy to tell very early on in the conversation that we're just kind of talking, that we were talking to an evangelist who has a really strong opinion on the way he thinks programming can be made better and the way the work of a developer can be more efficient and more enjoyable. Um, but just by kind of embracing a different paradigm or ideally embracing his favorite language. Um, yeah, without further ado, um, let's jump into the episode and then I'll be back in the end with a few more comments, possibly. Welcome to the What the Data podcast with your hosts... Mitch and Leo. Hey, Jonathan. So I actually, I wanted to ask you quite a lot of questions. Let's start with the fact you wrote a book about separating basically the data from, from uh, creating a data-oriented programming. Sorry. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Maybe the most interesting thing about data-oriented programming is that at least when I start uh, writing the book, there was zero entry on Google about data-oriented programming. So I was kind of thrilled and excited because I know a lot of programmers that you would say, do you like data-oriented programming? And they say, yeah, sure, it's great. And I don't know if there are so many terms like that that lots of people know about, but Google doesn't. And on, on Wikipedia, it was a bit of frustration because... Of course, the first thing I did was to write a, a Wikipedia page of data the programming, and I would be great marketing, and I would generate millions of leads to my book, and I would be rich forever and forever. The only problem is that in order to write an article on Wikipedia, you, could, you need to prove and to find secondary sources for the topic. Not primary sources, secondary <laughs> sources. So how did anything ever get started on Wikipedia then? Yeah, no, it's, it's new. It's a new regulation. It, it, uh, no, I don't, no it's not, it doesn't have to be Wikipedia sources. It should be non-Wikipedia sources that 
mention you the topic that you want to write about and the, the source should not be about the topic the main topic of the source should be another topic and mention the topic that you want to create a uh, wikipedia entry for so you publish the book first even if i write the book first it would be no i need to write the book and to have other people mention the book then it's okay then i can quote them on wikipedia Yeah, but I know this for marketing practices. I'm sure Lior has heard about this too. Some marketing agencies would just say like I write that they write Wikipedia articles for your company and then they would just use this as a tool to show up on Google. Mm. I'm sure there was a lot of abuse before they set up these rules. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, uh, what is data-oriented programming? Let's, let's see. So it's something that it's a set of best practices that lots of developers from many languages are aware of. Um... And the book is an attempt to formalize them and to clearly, illust to cl to clearly illustrate what is the trade-off in applying each of the three principles that make data-oriented programming. So if I, if I may ask here, uh, you're saying it's something that's already existing for quite a long time. People are aware of it, but yet you needed to, to formalize it in a certain book that people can understand it. Uh, so when we're looking at at the system that you have developed, what are the what are the advantages now? Why should people actually go and and read the book, or are they already using it and just not aware to the fact that there are other parts that they can actually adapt into the system? Yeah, so there are some uh, small part of the developers that already use them, but they don't know the name and the clear definition, and for them it could be. From an intellectual and curiosity perspective, enjoyable to, you know, it's always enjoyable when someone clearly frame an idea that you had and you saw that you were the author of the idea. So that's one. Uh, but that, but the main objective of the book is to to make it this con this program paradigm more digestible digestible for people that are not aware of this paradigm, namely object-oriented developer that suffers so much in Java, in C-sharp, or languages like that. So, so what, what I wonder about this is, like, we, we also had some, some other author a while ago um, who wrote a book, for example, and he picked the topic of PySpark. That was just a thing that he was passionate about. How did you decide that you have this one thing that you are really passionate about and you want to spend all the time to write a book yes. and just become the advocate for it? Yeah, great question. And the reason was that I've, I've been a Clojure developer for 10 years. And before Clojure, I had 10 years of programming in C++ and Java. And it was a nightmare for me. It was not fun to, to be a developer. And I discovered JavaScript 10 years ago, and it made it a bit more fun. But when I discovered Clojure eight years ago, it became really, really fun. Really. Every day of my life, I exaggerate a bit, I'm coming to work with a smile on my face. I'm happy to meet my compiler, my screen, and to talk closure with my fingers. I really enjoy it, and it makes me uh, smile and be happy, and uh, I can be uh, at ease with my wife and my, uh, my kids. The problem uh, is that Sometimes I enjoy it so much that I prefer to be with my... Uh... <laughs> so I ask myself, why? What, what is it that makes it so enjoyable for me? 
And for my coworkers that work in closure, what is it? What is the secret sauce of closure for programmers? Why closure developers are so happy? And I made a deep research for, uh, I would say, half a year, discussing with folks of the closure community, trying to nail it down. What is it that makes closure so special? And it's not the fact that it's a Lisp language because there are many Lisp languages. It's not the fact that it's a functional language because there are many functional languages. It's not the fact that it has the best REPL or console because we have console and REPL in many other languages. So what is it? And with the help of the Clojure community, I was able to discover that it was the fact that it is data-oriented. And for the kind of systems that I build, what I call information systems, having a language that embraces data-oriented programming without calling it this way makes it makes me and other closure developers very, very productive. There is less friction between the product requirements and the language. So maybe you can explain to us a little bit what is closure actually, or what is it used for? What are the use cases for that? Yeah, so uh, closure is a, I won't say a niche programming language, but it's not a mainstream. It's in the middle, maybe in the top 10 language. Uh, top 10 most used after Python and JavaScript and Java. A bit less popular than Scala, let's say, but more popular than Haskell or OCaml or stuff like that. So it's in the middle uh, somewhere. And it's a language that runs both on the backend and on the frontend. So we have Clojure on the backend that is hosted by the JVM, the Java Virtual Machine. And we have Clojure Script on the frontend that is uh, hosted by JavaScript Virtual Machine. And it could be also on Node.js and in the desktop because you know JavaScript is everywhere. So basically, we have Clojure JVM and Clojure JavaScript. And um, the main idea of Clojure is that when you build an information system, your most your main concern should be should be how to represent data in a way that it's straightforward for developers to manipulate data. And especially data that don't live inside your program, that either start from the outside, like in the database, or maybe start in your application, but then data need to be sent to another service. So, so I was just asking, is, is there any like big project that's written in Clojure that people might know about? Yes, yes. Like NASA, you mean, or Walmart, or uh, Google, or Facebook? <laughs> Very small companies. Yeah, so in, in 2021, Clojure, in, in every big company, there are small projects in Clojure, but also uh, real product like Grammarly, maybe, you know, or CircleCI runs on Clojure, or Rome Research runs on Clojure. Um, there is a, in the Clojure webpage the list of big companies that use Clojure. Uh, when we're talking about uh, 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 separating the data from from the from the code itself, uh, at the end of the day, we trying to use the data right to improve the code that we're working with, but that the data is not always available for us. This is what you're trying to explain, basically, with the separation, or the fact that we don't need to run the software and we don't, we don't need the data to run the software. Basically, we can run it as a standalone product. 
I would say that we need to organize our program so that data is treated as a first-class citizen, you know, like business class or first-class, that data has yeah. uh, first-class citizen rights. That is not something weird inside our program. Think about numbers, for example. There is no ceremony around numbers in a program, right? You want to write two plus two, you write two plus two in a program. You don't create an object that wraps number twos and call the method two on the object in order to mutate the value of the object so that now instead of two, it's four. Right? I see. Yeah. And in a sense, in, in most programming languages, that's what we do with data. Most programming languages don't give the programmer access to data as data. You need this filter or this layer of objects that uh, hide data fr from you. And you, don't, you only have access uh, to the pieces of data through the methods. You can get the customer name, you can get the shopping cart value, you can get the weather, you can get whatever. But you don't get access to data as a whole. And if you build an information system that is data-centric, you need access to data as data with no ceremony, just data, like numbers or strings. Just for, for me to, 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 um, to gather what you just said, it's, it's like um, closure is very, very well suited for very specific use cases that are data heavy, right? Yeah, but most, most use cases that I know of fit into this category, what I call information system. Every website is made of a front end that is an information system and a back end that is information system and microservices where each service is an information system that reads data from somewhere, manipulates it a bit according to business logic and passes it to another node down the stream. If you build a compiler on a game, then no, you don't need closure. If you build a shell script or a database, you don't need closure. But if you build an application, a web application, let's say, so it's an information system and closure um, makes it easier uh, for you the developer to think about your program, to implement the pro And I'm not talking about closure, the syntax. I'm not talking about the parentheses or whatever, or the JVM. I'm, I'm talking about the mental model that closure encourages you to build in order to tackle the, the, the problem. And I think it could also uh, ease the communication between products owners or product le uh, leaders and developers, because everybody understands what is data. You don't need to be a developer to understand what is data or what is the field or what is an attribute. But in order to understand what is the appropriate name of a method or the parameter that the method should receive, then product owners have nothing to say. But product owners have a lot to say about the data model. And, and, and embracing closure philosophy could uh, remove a bit of the friction in the discussion between uh, product owners and developers. So if me and Michael basically, basically having a relationship of I'm a product owner and he is a developer, I can tell him how I want to see my data, but he can develop it with Clojure in an easier way for him. So it's not going to be overcomplicated with tough. 
yes. And I think that if you follow closure philosophy, what you will find is that even in the inner parts of the pro, at the interface of the program, at the boundaries of the program, data will be add as the product owner shaped it, right? If there is a JSON API, it's defined mm -hmm. by the product owner. So there, even if you implement in Java, it will be the same. But the difference is that if you develop the program according to closure philosophy, even in the inner part of the program, you will find pieces of data that make sense from a product owner perspective and not only gibberish uh, that only developers understand. So uh, this is where we plan to have a short break and then continue the conversation. And um, as you can probably tell from me popping up again, we actually uh, had troubles and weren't able to kind of um, move further in this direction. So the idea that Jonathan has been describing so far is um, an idea of consistency, I would say, an idea that uh, form and function would come closer than they might be in other programming languages and that your objective could actually be achieved a bit easier if you actually don't have to worry about a lot of um, legacy problems, a lot of things that were part of the way languages were designed that are maybe not as applicable to what he's calling information systems. So um, programs that have a, that are very tightly coupled to data in a certain sense. Um, so yeah, I, I suggest if you have more, if you're more interested in the topic, um, go check out his book. Maybe at some point in the future, we will also try to record a sequel to this episode. So yeah, thanks for listening. And um, I hope you also check out our other episodes. Um, see you next time. Thank you for listening to the What the Data podcast. 